The text for this morning's sermon is in Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. The text says this, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not requite man according to his work? I want to begin with a word to women who have had abortions and to the fathers who perhaps agreed to it and to perhaps grandparents who demanded it. This message will be painful for you, but there is a word of hope that I want to begin with. And God has seen to it that I begin this way by bringing across my path this week a young woman who had an abortion with whom I spoke for 45 minutes, uh, a woman who had a miscarriage on Monday who called me on the phone to say even though this sermon would be excruciating for her, she was behind me in it. And... Uh, Listening on KTIS, Jeanette Vogt, in the interviews concerning women in abortion. So God has uh, made very clear to me how I should begin. And the word of hope is this. There are no past sins that cut a person off from Christ or from Christian fellowship. What cuts a person off from Christ and from the church is the endorsement of past sin as opposed to the repentance of it. Repentant people are forgiven people. They're on their way to being healed people. They can be hope-filled people. Beverly Smith McMillan opened the first abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi. Then she experienced a life-changing conversion to Jesus Christ. And this is what she wrote. The good news that makes the gospel so relevant today is that God forgives. I know from personal experience that the blood of Jesus can cover the sin of abortion. And very practically, I would just like to draw the attention of you women to the ministry called Conquerors, associated with the New Life Homes. It's a post-abortion support group that meets for a nine-week series of support sessions involving group as well as individual counseling. If you would be interested, I could give you the phone number. On the back, um, I hope that no woman 
who's had an abortion in this room right now, or three or five abortions, will leave saying, no way could I ever tell that to Pastor John, or no way could I ever say that to the staff member or confess it in that church assembly because of what they've just said about abortion. Okay? I realize that I'm dealing here with this message just as with so many issues with a horrendous tension. On the one hand, the women who have experienced abortion have the potential of being one of the, some of the strongest forces for life in our culture. But on the other hand, everything in the pro-life movement is like a dagger going home to those women. Every little pamphlet, every brochure, every word like killing is just like a dagger. So you've got this tension where these women could be so powerful and yet, in a sense, for their own sanity, need to keep some distance. So my invitation to you is this. When you can, when the forgiveness is sunk to the bottom and the healing has taken root and the hope is firmly grasped, come on, we really need you. There is a work to be done. There is a cause to throw yourself in for that you above all people can be effective in. Now I want to look at Proverbs 24, verse 11. First, which says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Now you'll notice that there is no description at all about the precise nature of the situation in view. That's typical of the Proverbs, isn't it? Proverbs are general statements of principle. And evidently God intends for us to have the spiritual wisdom, the awareness of Scripture, the experience of life, to know how to take a general statement like this and apply it biblically and appropriately in our situation. It's a general statement. I believe that's intentional because God doesn't want us to limit this text in the protection it gives to any particular group of humans. He doesn't want us to limit it to Jews or white people or healthy people or rich people or intelligent people. So he leaves it general. Don't limit it to any particular group. Of humans. So here's the way I would restate the duty required of us Christians in verse 11. If a group of humans is being led away to death who ought not to die, we are required to rescue them. Or to use the second half of the verse, let's put it another, another way. If there's a group of humans who are stumbling, and Hebrew is literally slipping, sliding, to the slaughter, and that's the literal word too, who ought not to be slipping to the slaughter, we are required to hold them back, the text says. So what's commanded here is some kind of intervention. doesn't say what kind. Just some kind of intervention is required of us if humans are being killed, who ought not to be killed? Verse 12. 
an objection is raised implicitly and answered explicitly. The objection would go like this. I didn't know. I didn't know it was happening. And then the the answer of God in this text is, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not requite man according to his work? Now, the first thing that's taught in verse 12 is this. The possibility exists that a slaughter can be happening so cloaked that a person can make plausible before man the excuse that they didn't know about it. That's what's envisioned here. Something can be so hidden, can be so out of the way behind camp walls or clinic walls or prison walls or uh, somewhere, tent walls can be so hidden that a person can say, well, I didn't know. And then the second thing that's taught in this text is that that excuse will likely not hold up in God's courtroom. Because even while men don't weigh the heart and therefore can't assess whether you're telling the truth, God weighs the heart, puts it in the scales, he weighs it to see whether not only there's any knowledge in it, but any willful ignorance. Like the refusal to look at pictures or the refusal to watch the silent scream, etc. I've talked to pro-choice people this week who are enraged when you try to show them a picture of an unborn child or use the word child. God will take the heart and he'll weigh it and say, now, where, where does that refusal come from? What kind of motive is at work there in the heart? So let me just summarize three things our text is teaching. Number one. When a group of human beings is taken away to be killed who ought not to be killed, our biblical duty is to rescue them. Second, sometimes that slaughter can be concealed enough that you can make a plausible case to men, but not God, that you didn't know about it. And third, that excuse will very likely not hold up in the courtroom of heaven because God not only knows what ignorance is in us, but what ignorance is blameworthy ignorance that we chose. Now, I believe very strongly that this text is God's text and God's message to us concerning abortion and that slaughter. And I believe it's a call to action of various kinds. Before I spell out the action, I want to try to justify that conviction that I believe we have no right of taking the unborn as a category of humans and excluding them from the protection of Proverbs 24, verse 11. And I have seven reasons for why we may not exclude the unborn from the category of human who are protected in this text against the slaughter. One, 
They, the unborn, have been conceived by two human beings, not by two animals or by an animal and a human. And therefore, they have the genetic makeup of a human and are absolutely unique in the animal kingdom. Second, the Bible teaches that in the womb, God is knitting together a person. Psalm 139, 13, thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. Third, the Bible speaks of the unborn in personal terms, not impersonal terms. For example... In Genesis 25:22, Rebecca's pregnancy is described like this. The children struggled together within her. And the word for children is banim. It's the word that's translated hundreds of times, sons or children. It has nothing to do with any technical thing called fetus. It's just the children wrestled in her womb. Another example, in Luke 1.41, when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, it says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. Babe, brephos, the same word used in the next chapter in this sentence, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The same word used in Acts 18 Suffer the little babes, breath us to come to me. The unborn are not spoken of as though they were impersonal blobs. They are spoken of as personal. Fourth, the unborn look like you and me. The science of fetology, with their... Photography in the womb and their ultrasound pictures have opened a window on the womb in our decade that is breathtaking. It is a window on the womb far wider than any window onto Auschwitz or Dachau or Belzen. And the reason God has opened the window on the womb is to remove your excuses. That's exactly why providence has granted photography of the fetus from the time of conception right on up. You don't have to do anything but go to Franklin Library, like I sent Karsten to, to find out what babies look like at every stage along the way. You recognize this silhouette? Is this one of us? Ten weeks in the womb. One of our women miscarried this baby on Monday and saw it and she called me and she said, tell him it was a baby. It had little black eyes and a head and arms. I saw it. 
95% of the abortions in this country kill babies more mature than this. I have here the payment schedule for abortions for the Midwest Women's Health Center, four blocks from here. They don't even list abortion fees under seven weeks. From seven to twelve weeks, you pay them $195 to kill your baby. From twelve to thirteen weeks, you pay them $260. From fourteen up, you pay them $360. And then there's a little note here that says if they're too advanced, they'll send you to another place. You go over to Ramsey. Last week, no, it was two weeks ago at Ramsey, there was a young woman named, was it Carla or Darla? Darla. Tim Wilkinson tried to talk her out of it. She was five months pregnant. This is her baby. Is this one of us? They pleaded, don't take your baby's life. Don't go in there and let them do that. They're going to burn it to death or cut it to pieces. Don't let them do that. And she did it. They look like us. Looks matter. That's the way you tell whether you're looking at a human or an ape. It doesn't look like a human. It looks like an ape. Looks matter. It's one of us. God has opened a window on the womb so that you can see the baby now. I have a friend, Scott Johnson, who's been involved in two rescues. He's a pastor over in Twin Harbors. And uh, he called me two weeks ago and he said, For the first time, John, I know I saved a baby today. I stopped a couple as they were going in. My wife was arrested in the rescue. And I said, Can I just talk to you for a minute before you go in there? And they let me. I asked them how far along they were and they told me. I showed them a picture of their baby and they were just stunned. They said, we thought it was an egg yolk. We thought it was like an egg yolk. It was a baby. They turned around and went home. Wouldn't do it. They don't know. Most of the women don't know what's in there. There's a conspiracy of silence. And that's why there's so much rage when pictures are used. The, the jig's up. The debate's over when the movies are on and the pictures are shown. Fifth, these little beings will grow up if left alone. If we don't intrude upon them and violate their space and treat them with uh, violence, they will grow up just like all of us did. John Stott said they are not becoming human. They are growing into the fullness of humanity that they already possess. Number six, Being tiny does not make you less human. We know this because we don't regard born infants as less human than our other children. Nor does not breathing through your lungs make you less human. I know that because if Noel were on a respirator for several months, I wouldn't regard her as unhuman. It doesn't matter that they're not breathing yet. It doesn't matter that they aren't rational and don't have language because if it did, we wouldn't count little babies human until they were a year old. 
It doesn't matter what their location is. That they happen to be inside a little womb is no choice of theirs and is utterly irrelevant as far as their human status goes. Would you want somebody to judge your humanity by your location on planet Earth? Nor does it matter how their blood happens to cleanse itself using the placenta any more than the humanity of a person is denigrated when they have to be on dialysis three times a week to get their blood cleaned up. Everything that makes the, the little unborn baby different from you and me is irrelevant in determining its humanity. And then finally, number seven, the unborn are humans because more and more of them at earlier and earlier ages can live outside the womb if cared for adequately. Here's a little picture of uh, Kenya King, born at four and a half months along. 18 ounces. She lived. She's happily sitting here, smiling in her mother's arms, well-developed now at five pounds. And here's the picture of the thousands of babies every week, her size, that are burned to death or dismembered. Now, how do you handle this? Why is this baby human and accepted, and this baby is regarded as murderable with impunity. Why? What, what's going on here? Or I have another picture here of little Liberty Ann Hinkle, born at five and a half months, one pound, three ounces. Here she is a year old with her little bonnet on, very happy. And they found 1,600 buckets of babies this size in Los Angeles a few years ago. Legal. The difference between the dead baby on the left and the live baby on the right is one thing. The dead baby on the left was not wanted and the live baby on the right was wanted. And you know what, brothers and sisters? that criterion for humanity won't be accepted in heaven. And it ought not be accepted on earth either. So my conclusion is now from some of these seven points is that the unborn are a category of humans whom we have absolutely no right to exclude from the protection required in Proverbs 24, verse 11. No right at all. Finally then, I want to address this one last point. Are the kind of rescue efforts which involve trespassing and arrest right biblically, and required for some. I'm going to argue that it is right biblically and that for some whose conscience dictates it is required. It is of me, perhaps you. Those of us who were arrested on December 19th were arraigned in the Ramsey County Court 
on January 6th, and we appeared before Judge James Campbell, a very wonderful pro-life judge to our great advantage. Um, He gave every one of us a chance to address the whole court, 92 of us. Not everybody took it. I did. And I'll tell you what I said to him as I stood there before his bench. As meekly and as respectfully as I could, I said, Your Honor, suppose that I lived next door to a man who hated me and didn't like me at all and was a real mean-spirited fellow and put up no trespassing signs all over his fences to keep me out. And one day I heard children screaming in the backyard and I rushed to the fence and I looked and one of them was choking and the others didn't know what to do. And I jumped instinctively over this no trespassing fence and I tried to save the child and I couldn't save it. It died anyway. And uh, after the hubbub had settled down, this man charges me with trespassing, takes me to court. And the judge for reasons beyond his control, has to fine me $50. That's what they fine us. I said to him, I said, Judge Campbell, would I be showing disrespect for the law not to pay that fine? And here's his answer. He's very respectful, very appreciative. He said, in that case, you should appeal the decision. I said, why not this case? He said, there are distinguishing facts. I said, would you mind telling me what the distinguishing facts are? And he paused as though to take a big sigh in his spirit. This man hates child killing. And he said, the Supreme Court has decided that abortion is legal. That's the end of it. Now, this is very important. Listen carefully here because I want to make a connection between this very insightful comments of Judge Campbell and what was happening in Atlanta back in August. In Atlanta back in August, there were hundreds of people being arrested during Operation Rescue. Meanwhile, Charles Stanley and his church, the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, were drafting a statement why the Operation Rescue is unbiblical and and a bad tactic. I have a copy of that statement right here from Charles Stanley's church. I've been studying it, reading it trying to uh, honor its arguments. What they argued is this. Um, Biblically, the only laws that a Christian has any right to break are laws either, I'll read it to you right from the back here, that require an act which is contrary to God's word or prohibit an act which is consistent With God's word. And they argue then trespassing is a good law. It doesn't require any evil. It doesn't forbid any obedience. Therefore, it's wrong for Christians to trespass. Now, having stood before Judge Campbell and listened carefully to what he said about the situation I raised, I understand more clearly than ever now why I disagree and why I think there's a fundamental mistake made in this position paper from the First Baptist Church of Atlanta. What Judge Campbell said to me was very clearly, 
you should appeal the sentence if you are found guilty for trespassing to save a life. Meaning, you are not guilty. He said there is a legal reality called, this was his words, the law of necessity. Meaning, when it is necessary to save a life, lesser laws are superseded and you are not guilty. No judge in this country would find you guilty of trespassing if you were doing it to save a life because of the law of necessity. So I ask myself now, why then are all these people getting arrested and found guilty and put in jail or fined? It is not because of the trespass statute. It isn't really. The fundamental reality behind the arrests and the guilty findings is Roe versus Wade. What Roe versus Wade did in January 22, 1973, was strip the unborn of their standing as human beings. And once you have stripped them of their standing as human beings, you have removed them from being legitimately rescued as humans so that the law of necessity can no longer apply. But if you believe that they are human beings, then you are not guilty for trespassing to save their lives. And the law that you are infringing upon when you sit in front of an abortion clinic door and allow a policeman to carry you away is not the trespassing law. No judge in this country would find you guilty of trespassing to save a life. What you are infringing upon is the right of the Supreme Court to strip humans of humanity. That's what you are infringing upon, and you ought to. It is right to say, in a free country where there is pluralism and different ideas, there comes a point where the law of God can be disobeyed to such a radical, deep, uncivilized, barbaric extent that even in a pluralistic culture, you will say no more. The law that says you may not rescue a human being led to death is the kind of law that Esther disobeyed to save the Jews, that Rahab disobeyed to save the spies, that Obadiah disobeyed to save the prophets, that Cory Ten Boom disobeyed to save the refugees, that thousands of Germans should have disobeyed at the concentration camps, and that many of us will disobey this Friday. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God, We stand before you open and laid bare. You are the one who weighs the hearts. I put my heart into your hand, God. And I put the hearts of this people into your hand right now. 
to be weighed in the scales of where our allegiance is and what our criteria are for what we will do next. In Jesus' name.